Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. All right, behind the U, we're back. This time, we're going to go down memory lane with, with Clinton Portis. Clinton's all dolled up in his UM gear. Clinton, man, appreciate you doing this. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. We're just going to start at the beginning. When people think of you, obviously, they think of Miami. Obviously, they know about your career in the NFL, and they know you're from Gainesville. But I actually want to start before that, because you grew up in Mississippi. Am I correct? Yes, sir. Laurel, Mississippi. So what was that like growing up in the Deep South? It was different, but... Because I hadn't been exposed to anything, you didn't know better. You know, I grew up an LSU fan. That was our local team, you know, outside of Mississippi State. Ole Miss, LSU was what we saw every week, every Saturday. And on Sunday, we saw the Saints. So I'm a Saints fan as well. It was that content living. I think we saw that at an early age. Everybody from Laurel stays in Laurel, afraid to leave Laurel. People never really get out. And... I always thought bigger than Laurel. Like, I knew, like, this isn't my end-all, be-all. Fortunately, my mom moved to Gainesville and got married to my stepdad. And I think the exposure from that, you know, the changing circles, like having to, as a teenager, the middle school years that normally kids form identity begin to get in trouble. I think for me, I moved to Gainesville, so it gave me, I had to like pull it back. You know what I mean? I was by myself for the first two years in Gainesville because I was a new kid. I was the, you know, like coming from Mississippi to Florida, it's like, oh man, you country. You know what I mean? Like, so you had to take the time to catch up. And then that time to catch up, I think my identity, my personality, Everything that was bottled in got an opportunity to come out once I hit high school. You know, I got with the right group of guys and we all had a like interest in mind. And that was just to be successful. You know, we were all athletic. We were all competitive. And that began to build something. And I got an opportunity to come to the University of Miami. And from there, took off. Let's tackle a couple of things there. So what about you was country? I mean, just the Mississippi, you know, I mean, when you look at people and then it's different, Mississippi country in Southern is totally different from Florida Southern. Like I thought people from Florida, I'm like, man, this is not South. Like the South is Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina, you know, those back roads. You and you in Florida, it's like beaches, it's colleges, it's you know what I mean? Like, mosquitoes not eating you up in Miami. You know what I mean? It's a breeze come through. Everybody like, oh, Miami, you in the South. Like, no, go to Mississippi on some of those back roads. Go to Louisiana where that heat, when you walk outside and you just shower and you like, man, I got to take another shower. You know, it's totally different. Dress code, lingo, everything, you know. So I was behind and I always spoke slow. You know what I mean? Like, people thought something was wrong with me. I'm like, bro, I'm smarter than all y'all. You know what I mean? It's, so it just took me the opportunity to catch up. 
Did you ever encounter racism in, in Mississippi? I know you were a younger kid, but you know, you're in the 80s, right? You growing up in the 80s. I imagine it was there. You know what's crazy? The racism, I don't think, was such a huge thing in Mississippi because the people that was just it was obvious. It wasn't, wasn't a secret. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm, I don't know what's going on. Compared to once I got to Florida, I feel like I experienced way more racism in Florida. You think about Gainesville and remember the town, Rosewood was right outside of Gainesville. So going to Gainesville, coming to Miami, in Miami it was different because it was like Cubans, you know what I mean? At the University of Miami, we were looked down upon, you know what I mean? Like people were actually mad at us for being athletes at the University of Miami. Like, oh, y'all going to school for free. People don't realize Miami is a rich school. Miami is a private school. The kids at the at UM had Bentleys, Ferraris, Mercedes's, all of that when we were in college. So here we are pedaling a bike, riding across campus, and people looking at us like, oh, you go to school for free? <laughs> like, uh, scholarship, not realizing that they were paying arm and leg with their families had money. So my first real racist incident was actually supporting another cane, Kenny Kelly, in Naples, Fort Myers. And that was the first time I had ever been called the N-word from a police officer. You know, myself, Philip Buchanan, had went to Kenny Kelly. Kenny Kelly was doing a charity event, and a police officer actually called us the N-word. Like, you two N-words better get the bleep out of here. And I'm like, what? Like, you know, and I was, I, it was actually our rookie years in the NFL. So that was my first time really experiencing racism. Blatant, like, no holes, bars, you N-words better get the bleep out of here. So what, what did you think when you heard that? If you've never heard that before, what did you think when you heard it coming out of somebody else's mouth that wasn't one of your people? Well, when I heard it, and it was a police officer, I think the man in me was ready. Like, if you didn't have that badge and gun, it's whatever. But being that you have that badge and gun, and you got your, your hand on your gun, like, you N-words about to get the bleep out of here. It was a different reaction. Like, it was one of those shocking, like, wow, I'm, you know, in your eyes, just another N-word. You don't realize you see the vehicles and the dress code is like you don't even realize we were NFL players. The reality was you don't give a damn that we're NFL players. You know what I mean? Like you're upset that we have this opportunity or that we got that opportunity and you're doing what you're doing. So I think at, at an early age, you realize everybody is not for you. Everybody is not happy for your growth. Some people prefer you to stay in those situations that they expect you to be in, you know? So it was like having to adapt. And at the time, I think we were 20. I know I was 20. So it was like having to adapt to supposedly authority or safety being like racist. So that was my first real encounter. Now, you also said before you moved to Gainesville, but you said it took you two years to make friends. Everyone that knows you knows you're like the most extroverted, outgoing, talkative. You know, your personality's off the charts, supreme confidence. How does you go two years before you fit in? I don't see that out of you. It wasn't fitting in. You know, I think seventh and eighth grade was just that I've been taken from what I've been exposed to my entire life and put in a new 
you know, just, just dropped off in a new neighborhood and you got to figure out your surroundings. So it wasn't like it took me two years to actually make friends. It took me two years to say, all right, this person is actually cool. Or it took me two years to accept people. You know, when you go to school, you got people at school, you competing at school. Some of the guys I went to middle school with turned out to be some of the best athletes from Gainesville to ever come through, you know. And at that time that we were in middle school, everybody felt like they were the fastest, they could jump the highest, they were the strongest. So for me, a lot of those guys had a base because you got people supporting you. You got people saying, yeah, man, he's so fast. He's just outran a dog. And, you know, back in those days, you was running from dogs. Dogs weren't on chains. Or you walked through a neighborhood and the dog trying to get you, you know, like you knew walking home from school or walking home from the bus stop. Boy, when I pass this house, I got to take off. Compared to now, kids not getting chased by dogs. You won't let your kid go through no neighborhood that he shouldn't be going through. So it was totally different. So I, I think it just took those two years of middle school to decide what crowd I'm hanging with, so you know, what direction you're going in. Because you got the kids that's doing totally wrong, that's still gifted, but hasn't really recognized that talent. You got the kids that's kind of, you already know they're going to jail soon and you want to save them or you want to be cool with them. But as a, you know, middle schooler, uh, that ain't the influence you want. Like, I don't think kids or people realize how quick your direction is tainted. Looking at middle school, looking at high school, um, mistakes that you make now, especially with social media, you got mistakes coming back, hunt kids that some crazy tweet or something they said in high school, that surface four or five years later when in high school, what you thinking the way you thinking or me thinking the way that I'm thinking, where we're untouchable and we could do whatever or say whatever and it's not going to come back. All of a sudden, five years later, people like, oh, yeah, you remember this tweet? You're like, man, it, maybe it was a joke at the time. Like, I don't think people even give you the benefit of the doubt to the stuff that you used to be able to joke about or, you know, it was light with the people that knew you, but to outsiders, it's like, oh man, look at this tweet. But to the people that you tweeted or to the people that you were friends with at that time, it was like, ha, 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 you know, and over and done. Were you always playing football, Mississippi, coming to Gainesville? Like, were you always playing football? Were you playing other sports? Like, how, when did you start getting into athletics? Well, uh, basketball was my first love. Like, I thought I was Isaiah Thomas, you know what I mean? Like, I wanted to be Isaiah Thomas. So basketball was my first love. Football was just that, that competitor in me. So basketball is where I felt like, oh, man, if I ever get the opportunity, I want to go to the NBA. Like, I'm going to, you know, I grew up shooting bike rims and trash cans where we dunking on each other in the trash can. You know, like, that was the kids that really wanted to play. Like, you got to adjust your shot so it could go in a milk crate card that was nailed to the tree or a bike rim that was nailed to the tree. You know what I mean? So you kind of had to perfect your shot at a young age to be able to play. And, you know, I get to Florida, middle school offers basketball. They didn't offer football. And then once I hit high school is where I, you know, my, my first liking to football, like just a competitor when everybody was like, oh, man, 
I'm gonna be the starting. And I'm like, bro, I'm gonna be the starting cornerback. So y'all fighting for one position, you know what I mean? And then you having to go out and prove that you're gonna be the starting cornerback as a freshman. And, you know, it, it was crazy. Like everything happened so crazy for me because football season comes before basketball season. So I had such a successful freshman year that I was feeling myself and I was ineligible when it came time for basketball season. I had a 1.9 GPA, so I couldn't play basketball. And everybody looking like, CP, why are you not playing basketball? I think I was so embarrassed that I allowed myself to get cocky. You know what I mean? Like, I just felt like I had arrived. You know, it was my freshman year. And as I said, it took me two years to get comfortable. All of a sudden, I'm in high school, and it's like the instant you become, like your name is is buzzing and ringing bells because people see your talent, and you're getting the pat on the back. Oh, man, you're going to be next. And I, I didn't handle what I was supposed to handle in the classroom. And from that point on, I always said, you know what? I'm going to make sure my stuff's together, and I'll never hold myself back again. And I did it. Growing up in Gainesville, I think I, I heard somewhere, you grew up not too far from this college, right? Man, 10 minutes. Like, I was 10 minutes from the University of Florida. So my best friend was a senior. I was a junior. And he was going to the University of Florida. Like, he didn't even talk to other schools. He was one of the top recruits coming out in 98. And he was just sold on Florida. Every school would come see him. What was his name? Oh, Rod Littles. So he had a story in the paper every week. It was the first athlete, like, with a weekly story called Littles Diary in Gainesville, Florida, where the cameras followed us around. I'm a junior in high school, and you got, you know, a cameraman and a writer following high school kids. They were following him, but because me and him was always together, I say following us, you know what I mean? But they were following him to kind of get his journey to college because he was like everybody wanted him play outside linebacker safety and at the last minute florida took todd johnson from sarasota uh, riverview that went on to have a successful career played with chicago bears a couple years in the nfl so florida took todd johnson over rod like two weeks before signing day so he was on a scramble so when it came to the 99 class it was already a bad taste, you know what I mean? So I knew I wasn't going to Florida because I watched how they handled him. So it was never even a consideration. So when they called to offer me, it was like, hey, Clinton, we're thinking about offering you. And I'm like, give it to somebody else because I'm not thinking about coming. And that was like my one and only conversation uh, with Spurrier Jr. And I was done, like, no, nah, I'm not interested got off the phone, and I got the opportunity to play them in the Sugar Bowl. So it was cool. Everything worked out how it was supposed to work out in you, actually. You liked LSU growing up in Mississippi, so when you get to Gainesville, you switch allegiances. Are you, like, are you a big college? Are you following college football as a kid, like as growing up as a high school guy? Like, are you into the sport, or are you just kind of into playing high school ball? Oh, man, I love college. I still love college football to this day. So it was the receivers at this time. It was Chris Doring and Ike Hilliard. Those guys were there. Jack Jackson, Danny Werfel, where Florida was top three in college football with Spurrier's system. So I was definitely a huge fan. And then you got the Fred Taylor, Javon Curse, Jacquez Green experience 
which I think totally changed football. You know, when being able to see them firsthand was like everywhere we went because Gainesville was a college town. So therefore we had to go to college events and they were the stars. So everybody was in admiration of Javon Curse, of Fred Taylor, of these guys, of Jacquez Green. The admiration for them was so crazy that everybody just looked at them as like, like gods, like they were Michael Jackson. And I always had that attitude like, bro, I don't see them. Like, that's going to be me. This is the same respect people going to give me. And eventually it came, you know, by the time Fred T left Gainesville, Florida, for me to be in high school, and out and about in the public eye, and Fred T and Javon Curse come to my high school games or recognizing me out in public meant something to me. You know, when when you walk in and they like, "What's up, CP? Or what's up, young buck?" Like, keep doing your thing. I'm like, "All right, boy, my name ringing bells." You know what I mean? So it was one of those that I think you saw. I had the opportunity to see them which made me not admire them, want to outdo them. So I knew my time was coming. But because of what they did to your friend, you weren't going to Florida. Didn't even think about it. No visit, no, I didn't want to go to their games, none of it. So once that that went south, they're done. Oh, yeah. For me, it was over because I knew how loyal he was to Florida. Like, he used to tell coaches, nah, I'm going to Florida. They like, Rod, we want to come down and visit. It used to be coaches lined up in the yard. Like, we would pull up in his yard, and there's three college coaches that's sitting out here from making their rounds, and he like, man, I'm tired, bro. I'm, I'm about to shower and go to sleep. Like, I told you all not to come. And they like, oh, we just want to talk to you. And I'm like, damn, like, bro, you handling them wrong. You know what I mean? Although he told them, and, and that was one thing about it. He never sugarcoated it or never misled them because he was telling people, I'm going to Florida. And at the last minute, Florida pulled out because he hadn't got his AT score back. I think that was the real reason, which it came back like a week or two after signing day. So he ended up going to the University of Maryland. Everybody wanted to sign on signing day. Everybody wanted to sign February the 4th. That was national signing day. So... You know, I, I think it, it was just one of those situations that I was able to see from the outside looking in. So I saw both ends. I saw his loyalty to Florida, and I saw how Florida kind of turned their back to him when they thought he wasn't going to have the grades. You had said before that Maryland actually came after you the hardest, and you had said your best friend was there. So obviously, now I'm connecting the dots. Because before Miami, wasn't Maryland the team in play? Yeah, because my best friend was there. And that was that was the main reason. And their coach, being that I saw them swoop in and grab Rod in, in like that little two-week window prior to signing day, and their coach called me every day, I think even through the dead period. And at this time, you weren't supposed to contact they used to be like, somehow get a message, like, call us, call us, call us. You know what I mean? Like, you can call us, we can't call you. And mom loved their coach. Coach Mallory was the guy who recruited me. So he had built a relationship. And I used to come in the house like, mom, who called? You know what coaches call? And she would, oh, Maryland called you. And this this school called and this school. I'm like, Miami ain't called? Oh, yeah, they called too. I'm like, you withholding information, you know what I mean? So it was like one of those situations where Maryland was so adamant. And I was, you know, again, loyalty 
for me was big. So I was I was stuck on me and my best friend get to go take over. You know what I mean? Because I knew I knew his talent and us combined, it's gonna be hard to to stop the two of us. And Maryland was gonna allow me, they said I need to play both ways. So that was another another reason I wanted to. But once it came down to it, when the meat and potatoes kick in and you realize, like, them coaches going to tell you anything to get you on campus. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to tell you whatever you want to hear to get you on campus. But once you get there, you got to compete and show them you're capable. When does Miami enter the picture? Miami was always in the picture. It was, it was, it was Maryland and Miami. Those were my two. And I love Miami because Coach Solinger had to be the best recruit for me. I, I won't say everyone would appreciate Coach Solinger realness. For me, like day one, where all these coaches was coming in, kissing and telling you what you want to hear, Coach Sol came in and was like, hey, bro, if you want to come to the fucking school, let me know. I'll recruit your ass. If not, don't waste my time. I'll go out and recruit the next guy, bro. Don't waste my time. And I'm like, bro, this dude here is so thorough. Like, just my appreciation for his honesty because everybody else was selling, you know, blowing smoke up your butt. Like, you could do whatever. Oh, man, I want to play running back. I want to play DB, and I want to play kick return. Everybody like, okay, yeah, 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 you can do that. But the reality was... Once you get on this campus, you do what we tell you to do. You wanted to play running back, right? That was important to you? Like my junior year, I was one of the top DBs in, in the nation. I got moved to running back my junior year in high school, so I only had 900 yards rushing. But I had already passed the ACT as a junior, like one and done. So, of course, all the offers come when they realize you qualify. So early on in my junior year, I passed the ACT. All the offers come from all the schools because... I'm qualified. I've already got my test score. My GPA is, you know, 272, whatever it was, was high that you already know I can't even slip. If I went out and got all Fs this semester, I'm still qualified. So everybody was recruiting me to play defense. And then my senior year, I had to break out 2,000-yard season in high school. It was like the tweener, like teams was torn, like, well, you only played Two years at running back, we like you, we love you at DB. And I'm like, I'm starting to enjoy this running back thing. Like, those were my first two years was my junior and senior year. I had never played running back. Like, even when we pretend to play football as kids, I never lined up as a running back. You know what I mean? I would line up as, I was Deion Sanders or I was Andre Rice and Jerry Rice. I never lined up saying like, oh, man, I'm Barry Sanders. I didn't feel like I had those abilities so by the time I hit college like I said I'm two years in so I'm young in the running back world it was a lot it was a lot of upside there for me and Miami gave me that opportunity which honestly if Najee Davenport never get hurt in in the kickoff classic I think Miami was trying was was going to try to move me to DB and it's like when you're Looking back, certain stuff that used to happen, they would always put JP in before me when we first got in. Like my freshman year, they were all, like JP was always in front of me on the charts. And I'm like, I know I'm outworking him. You know, like I 
I know I'm busting my butt, but it was like limiting the opportunity for me to show what I was capable of running back because they knew what I had as a DB, which takes me back to Nike camp. The summer coming into my senior season, Miami had a Nike camp. And I think they had like 400 kids at the camp. And it was five kids, five or six kids that shut the camp down. And those kids ended up being Antonio Bryant, Andre Johnson, Kevin Beard, Tory Cox, myself, and Philip Buchanan. So out of the 400 kids that was there, the show came down to Tory Cox, Phil, and myself having to cover A.B., Andre Johnson and Kevin Beard, they basically told everybody else, like, watch these people compete. And I would line up against AB, line up against Andre, line up against Beard, and, you know, like, so on. But it was the three cornerbacks was me, Phil, and Torrey, and the three receivers was Antonio Bryant from Northwestern, Andre Johnson, and Kevin Beard. So I think Miami was really looking at me and Phil as a duo at DB. And Najee ended up getting hurt, which took the depth away. I got an opportunity to play running back and kind of blossom early. And if you look at so many of the situations, like Coach Davis incident, ECU, uh, where they pulled me out of the game, I'm like not knowing why they pulled me out of the game. It was like trying to, I feel like, now looking back at it, like it was trying to hold me back. So they could have switched, like switched my position. I know the injuries kind of led you to getting your opportunity as a freshman, but you told the story somewhere because you just mentioned the kickoff classic, a bet or a brag that James Jackson made to you before the game on the sideline. He said three plays in, I'm going for 50. You got to, you got to share the details. Bro, we were in the locker room. JJ said, hey, Rook, I bet you I have a 50 yard touchdown. Within my first three carries, I bet you $100. I damn near dove over the locker trying to make that bet. Bet, bet. It's nowhere in hell that he going to get this 50-yard run. And our second play of the game, he was out of there. And he come back to the sideline like, where my $100 at? And I'm just like, wow, like this dude is amazing. You know what I mean? And I'm sitting on the sideline thinking, you know what? I'm going to show him as soon as they put me in this game, I'm going to go break one. And Najee ended up getting hurt, which kind of, you know, had a black cloud. I'm sitting on the sideline like, Najee, go down. I'm ready. And J.J. played the entire game. We played Penn State the next week, the entire game. And I'm like, what about me? You know, like, when, when am I going to get my opportunity because he's doing everything. They're not even spelling him. Like, he was a full game back. I remember Ohio State game. Like, I had tears in my eyes on the sideline. I'm burning up. Drake walk over and put his arm around me. Like, bro, I'm, I'm ready, you know. And I got tears in my eyes. And Drake, like, like, poor, this is our first game, man. Like, we going to get our opportunity. <laughs> like, calm down. We going to get our opportunity, bro. This is our first game. And I'm just thinking, like, man, I'm ready. I'm ready right now. And my real opportunity came against East Carolina. I think it was, like, week four, week five. Well, I would imagine as much as respect you have for James Jackson, you probably thought you were better than him and should have been the starting running back. I always thought I was better than him. 
But uh, again, it was respect because JJ, like we had a healthy competition. JJ probably made me the trash talker that I am. Like he probably okay, you know, I won't say made me because I was always cocky, but I was cocky and confident. JJ stuff was another level because JJ felt like it should have been him going as the fifth pick in the draft instead of EJ. I mean, fourth pick in the draft instead of EJ. So JJ felt like he was better than EJ. And a lot of people, the locker room was like, JJ got it. You know what I mean? So I just watched EJ and I'm watching EJ destroy the NFL. And here I am with James Jackson. I'm thinking it's a great competition that it woke, you know, it wake you up because JJ didn't back down and it made me better. And he used to always be like, now this is what burnt me up. He used to always be like, I control your playing time. You go in when I say you go in. I determine that. And they used to burn me up. And I, every week we betted on who would have the most yards. Like, I didn't even care that he controlled my playing time because he was dead. He was correct. He did control my playing time. And I still betted him every week. That was just a competitor in me, the gambler in me, saying, if you get 20 carries and I get six carries, I'm going to get more yards on you in my six carries than you got in your 20. So I just believed in me. And if you go back and you look at a lot of those games, I won the bet. He won that Ohio State bet, though. But you had a, like you had a, you were a freshman All American. You had a you had a great freshman season. I won the bet. You won. <laughs> but you you know what's crazy? I had a great freshman season, but I feel like my best games was overshadowed. Like V Tech to this day, I can't find the V Tech game from '99. That was probably one of my best performances ever because V Tech had the number one defense. We played at Blacksburg on the road. Michael Vick was the man, the myth, the legend that, that they said he was. I had like 150, I think 156 against Virginia Tech and Blacksburg, which I don't think they had given up 100 yard back. No one had shredded their defense. I think I had 150 yards, but I should have had 300 yards. But the issue was I fumbled three times. And the three times that I fumbled were, they were home runs. Like, it was off to the races and Corey Moore, John Engelberger come from behind, pop the ball up, and I had, like, one man to beat. So I've always wanted to watch and dissect that game to actually see how it happened because that was one of my best performances. But because I had three fumbles, it was like one of those games they say you should sweep under the, you know, sweep under the rug. We got beat so bad, we didn't. So I've never really had the opportunity to that game and see what I really did. You said you used to nag. You would nag James Jackson all the time. What would you do? I mean, I was just in his pocket because it was getting the game and letting them know I'm there. You know what I mean? Like, as soon as you make a mistake, well, I'm here, I'm on your you know, but it was a big brother, little brother. It was it was no animosity because JJ actually helped. You know, he he gave me the game the same way EJ helped JJ. JJ helped me, and I would help JP and Frankie G because Willis wouldn't listen to me. You know what I mean? Like 
So it kind of skipped. What do you mean? Why wouldn't Willis listen to you? Willis felt the same way that J.J. felt in the, the same way that I felt. J.J. felt like he was better than E.J. I felt like I was better than J.J. Willis felt like he was better than me. So you guys have always talked about competition, right? There's a standard competition. I feel like with all those guys around, with that kind of confidence, with that kind of bravado, with that kind of ability, there is no other way. It's not. You got to think, Jason Gathers was in that room too. Jason Gathers' issue was he was too talented. He played running back, wide receiver, and DB. So because of the numbers, he was bouncing around. They put him at wide receiver when they need a receiver. They put him at a running back when they need a back. They put him at DB when they need a DB. He wasn't locked in at one position because he could do so much. And just a competitor amongst everybody else, you got to think, Najee was coming back from injury, trying to get out of school and prove his worth. DJ Williams was put in the, in the running back room because he was, they wanted to keep him. He was going to transfer. So they wanted to keep him happy. So they put him in in the running back's room and was feeding him the ball. So that created friction. Like, man, we got all this work over here trying to get on the field. You know, you put a linebacker in the running back room, and it was, like, designed to make sure they fed him. Not, And you didn't have a design to feed anyone else. We didn't have no play to, like, oh, okay, we're going to get CP the ball or we're going to get – Najee the ball or we're going to, you know what I mean? It was like, this play is for DJ to throw the ball at DJ, make sure he gets the ball. Like, what the hell? Like, they designed the plays for DJ? So I got hurt uh, my sophomore year. So I think that kind of lessened the tension because if, if, if I never get hurt, that running back room would have been overcrowded that year because you had James, Najee, myself, JP, Willis had just come in, DJ, and Jason Gathers. That wasn't going to work. And that was personalities. So for Coach Saul to be able to handle that, and of course, like I said, I got hurt. So I think I missed like four or five weeks. And it kind of opened up and worked itself. Speaking of Sol- Solinger, at your Sports Hall of Fame uh, speech, you, you were, you, a lot of credit you gave to Coach Saul. You talked about him earlier. How did he manage all you guys? To this day, I don't know, but all I know is that he did it, and he kept everybody in check. He kept everybody happy. He was honest with everybody. I can't say I ever heard him lie to somebody or promise somebody something that maybe they didn't deserve or they didn't get. It was, these are your requirements. This is how you're going to get on the field. And those standards was for everybody. Everybody had the same standards. It was no, from Coach Saul, it was no kissing. It was no, oh, I'm going to become friends with Coach, and he going to work this out. Coach Saul was one of the most honest coaches that I've ever seen. You know, a lot of coaches tell you one thing, walk off and tell somebody else, the same thing or whatever, whatever it is, not Coach Saul. What he tell you is what he meant. And, you know, I can remember many days on the sideline, like, Coach, you holding me back. You holding me back. I would always be in his ear. If J.J. made a play, you holding me back. If J.J. didn't make a play, Coach, you holding me back. And when he came into the locker room, East Carolina, it was all this is in the game. J.J. is down. I was like, what? It's like your start. JJ got hurt warming up. 
And I was like, my heart was boom, boom. And from that point on, I think it was always that open dialogue, that open opportunity, because, you know, everything didn't go how we wanted it to go, but you always could go and get answers. And that, that's part of the issue now. A lot of people can't get answers. They don't know who to talk to or the coach that they're talking to don't have any juice. He claimed he holding up for you, but in that meeting, he quiet as a mouse. Coach Saul, I think, always had his guys' support. And I remember him telling Coach Coach Davis and Coach Chubb, like, let me coach my guys. You know, I, I'm not putting in who you want in. Let me coach my guys. So I always had a different respect for Coach Saul. How did you treat Willis and Frank? Right? I imagine it was the same thing, right? They're coming after you. You're the big brother in the room. You want to show them the way. How'd you manage that with those, with them? You're the old elder statesman, and these two these young bucks are coming up for you. For me, I had to take JP under my wing. JP lost his pops. So it took us to pull him in because I think his enjoyment and excitement for football was playing for his dad. Then when his dad passed, I think it kind of took something away from him. So it was always having to make sure JP understood, like, bro, you got too much talent. Like, we need you. I used to call me and JP, you know, like we were kind of inseparable in practice and always had to help each other. Like, JJ is in the game. Najee wasn't there. So me and JP got to help each other try to understand what's going on. So it was more of me helping JP understand what was going on because he damn sure wasn't helping me. But when it comes to talent, like footwork, athletic ability, I tell people all the time, Jared Payton and Frank Gore, the, like the best two pure athletes I've ever seen. And for Philip, Jared, Frankie G, or, and Andre Johnson, Eric, you know, if I'm, if I'm going down the list, the best athletes like footwork, hands, vision, like they're doing stuff that you be like, like, J.P. kicked a 50-yard field goal in practice one day. Thought nothing of it. J.P. threw a 60-yard touchdown in practice one day. Who else got that kind of arm? You know what I mean? Like, I seen three people try to tackle J.P., like, had him trapped in, and nobody even touched him. And Frankie G. was the only other person that I saw that could do that. So it was it was finding out everybody's talent and kind of – making sure you improve your game to it. So when it came to Willis, you know, like I said, Willis and JG, I was trying to help. JG was kind of under my wing, but then they, they, like I said, they moved him around. So when JG getting his opportunity, they moved. So with Willis, Willis was from Central. Najee was from Central. Najee was already just growing up, feeling like he was getting screwed over. So Willis was under Najee tutelage and under Najee wing. So it was just one of those where Willis felt like he should have been getting his opportunity right then and there. And I felt like this was my time because if you if you really pay attention, my sophomore year, yeah, I was hurt. That's when Willis came in. So my junior year, Willis felt like he done put in the work. And I feel like JJ finally gone. This is my showcase. So it was always someone felt like they was getting the short end of the stick. And I was ready for it. Like, like I said, I'm ready to compete. And we competed. That 2000 year, uh, I know you said you were hurt, but I feel like to a man, you guys felt like you should have played for the championship. Yeah. 
that too, another game that got overshadowed because we lost. I was telling you about the VTech game, the Washington game. That Washington was on my way, and we lost that game, so it was overshadowed again. Boston College, my junior year, Boston College, I had a phenomenal game against Boston College, but because it was so close, the play that overshadowed that is, is Matt Walter's interception and Ed Reed snatching the ball away. That's all you get from the Boston College game. But if you go look at those numbers, man, I ripped Boston College. And offensively, I think we had like four interceptions, four or five interceptions in the red zone, which we never had. You know what I mean? Like, I think that might have been Kennedy's worst game as a college quarterback. So it was overshadowed again. It was overshadowed by Kennedy's worst game and Ed Reed making the play that he made. You know what I mean? National championship. My screen pass that went for a 60-yard touchdown that would have put three people on the stand to split MVP of the national championship got called back. You know what I mean? Like, all stuff that I say probably would have elevated went overlooked. You know what I mean? But I still remember I made those plays. I bet you do. I bet, and I bet, and I bet you remind the guys when you see them, huh? I don't. It's not worth because honestly, I think the best thing that ever happened was Ken Dorsey was the face of the offense, and Ed Reed was the face of the defense. Everybody respected Ed, his work ethic, his talent. But what I think guys respect the most is Ed could have left and went to the NFL with that 2000 class, and he came back. So everybody admired that decision. So it was never a question about who was the defensive leader. You know, the, the identity of the defense was Ed Reed. Offensively, you had Brian McKinney, Jeremy Shockey, Andre Johnson, myself, like, you had weapons that could have been the face of the offense. And if any of us get it, I think it, it would have been friction. So being that everybody respected Kennedy on and off the field because it kept all the egos and animosity down. You see what I'm saying? So the face of, of the U was Kennedy Ed Reed. How was, Ken, how was Kenny with you guys? Man, Kennedy was great because, I mean, he was class of 99. So I knew Kennedy when he wasn't getting no playing time. You know, me, Kennedy, Kevin Beer, Antoine Joyce, like most sites, a few guys came in earlier than everybody else. That's when you could bring, you know, bring a couple guys in during summer session that had already graduated or, what, you know, whatever uh, met the requirements. So they brought like six of us in in Kennedy was one of those guys coming from California. So we had to work out every morning together. We, you know, like we did so much before all the other freshmen got in. So we already had, had a relationship. And then when we got to the dorms, Kennedy was down the hall from us. You know, like it was a lot that before he ever got his opportunity, like, bro, we riding together to, to workouts in the morning. You know what I mean? On the back of... James Sakura truck. So it was a different bond. So when Kennedy got his opportunity and took over, it was just one of those, you watch his development. And he was such a smart kid that he kept everybody in line. He wasn't a guy that was going to rah-rah and, and yell, but he was so calm, cool, and collective 
He's like, Kennedy, bro, I'm wide open. Like, this dude can't guard me. He's like, all right, I got you. It was one of those type situations. Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world. Globally or locally, UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. Were you part of that group that wanted Larry Coker to take over when Bush left? Yeah, I was. You know what's crazy? They were talking about Barry Alvarez. I played running back. I did not want to carry the ball 35, 40 times a game. It was me, Ed Reed, maybe Bibbs was still there. It was about six or seven of us that went to Paul D and was like, bro, we don't want the change. We want Coach Coker. Like, we don't want Barry Alvarez. We want Coach Coker. I think Kenny, uh, I think Dorsey, Reed, a couple of the offensive linemen, myself, went to the office, like, instantly, like, bro, we want Coach Coker. And Paul D was like, all right, I'll take you guys, you know, word into consideration. We're going to do our due diligence and process. And we like, no, we want Coach Coker. Like, it was only seven people in that office. And and I was one of the seven. And I can, I can identify all seven if I think about it. But yeah, I didn't I didn't want to carry the ball 30 times a game. Like, and when Coach Coker got hired, Coach Coker didn't have to discipline us. Like Coach Coker didn't have to do nothing but give us the direction. And it goes so underrated the importance of Coach Swayze. That was like Coach Swayze team. You know what I mean? Like Coach Swayze was our disciplinarian. Coach Swayze was our confident. Coach Swayze was our connection to the coaches. Coach Swayze has played such a huge role in the University of Miami. It's funny you say that. Uh, I was at the Hall of Fame induction one or two years ago because my broadcast partners got in and Will Furk and Antro Roll got in and they spoke about Swayze the same way you speak about him. Bro, everybody, everybody. If you're around the program, you know it. Because if you're around the program, you know what happened in the offseason. If you're around the program, you know. Like, bro, we didn't go upstairs. You know what I mean? Like, we weren't upstairs talking to Coach Coker and Coach Chud. Like, we talked to Coach Saw, Coach Sway. Well, first off, Coach Saw, outside of the running backs room, probably had the most respect because when he didn't speak a lot, but when he spoke, everyone listened. CJ and Coach Shannon were more player coaches. Like, they were in the locker room shooting hoops, shooting cracking jokes, you know, getting their hair cut when we get our haircut. So they were the players' coaches. Everybody else, like, you didn't see them until you was on the field or in me. And, you know, I mean, like, it was, who cares? But the people that deserve the credit, Swayze, Saul, CJ, look at CJ's resume, man. Look at the receivers, Curtis Johnson, why he never got an opportunity at the University of Miami baffles me to this day. Like, this man has developed and created, look at Michael Thomas, you know, like look at the receiving core with the Saints set that you had never heard of with Meacham and all of those kids. 
You look at Andre Johnson, Reggie Wayne, Santana Moss, all Hall of Fame caliber guys. You know what I mean? The Roscoe Parrish that's underrated. CJ did such an outstanding job, but he's rarely mentioned. But those were like the people that were really hands-on creators deserve credit for the success at the University of Miami. Can you talk about one other person on those? Not, this won't be hard. Santana's done this podcast, and he's talked a lot about Curtis Johnson, but he also talked about Edgerin James, kind of like Edgerin James is like the godfather. The way he carried himself, the way he never changed for anybody, the way he influenced you guys. Why are his words? Why is what he said? Why is he such have such a big impact over all of you? First off, that's my main man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's my right-hand man to this day. The thoroughness of EJ, knowing where he come from, if you've been to Mockley, if you you know his story, if you know his determination, like EJ plans everything. EJ's schedule is planned for the next three years. If you was like, what are you doing June and 9th, 2023? You're like, oh, all right, I got to. Oh yeah, yeah, I got, I got, I got that filled in already. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna do this ab workout that Swayze gave me, and I'm doing this, but my afternoon is free. You know what I mean? I think if you look at the single most important former player in the University of Miami history, it has to be EJ because his influence carries so much weight. I think the inspiration. That, that EJ has been to that program behind the scenes. You know, when you walk in, it's the Ezra and James big team meeting room. You know what I mean? Like the importance of EJ and Mike played a, a huge role and Sap played a huge role, but no one has played a bigger role in the identity of the U and doing it their way than EJ has. I think never getting in trouble, his business acronym, his his professional acronym, if he say he's going to do something, he's going to do it. The players he's taken under his wings, and it seemed like at the University of Miami, but he had them like middle school, high school, so they end up going through the, the college ranks, not just at Miami. So you, you're talking about young kids as in middle school that eventually makes it to the NFL that were influenced by EJ and no one ever known. You know, no one ever knew that they were training at the property or that EJ helped them throughout their college career. You know what I mean? Like his importance and never asking for credit, never publicizing it, never getting in trouble, always doing it the right way and genuine, you know, the genuineness in his decisions, because he support everybody and everything. You know what I mean? He's a phone call away. Most people you can't find. You know, like, I can't get XYZ number. I can, but I can't. You know what I mean? Everybody got EJ number. You know, he's accessible, and he's going to give you the advice that he would say. He's never going to. He's going to give you the advice that you should consider. Now, it's on you. He's not forcing this upon you. It's on you. Like, this is what I would do, but this is what I would look at. Like, wait X, Y, Z, and think about this. You know what I mean? Like, he's going to put it on your plate 
or your mind in that aspect. So you weigh the pros and cons and you make a educated decision. That's what, what he always say. Make an educated decision. Know the plus, the minus, and then make your decision. And I don't think you could find a realer individual or a realer person with that genuineness, with that openness, the support, the values, you know, like you're talking about somebody who embodies the identity of the University of Miami. Like, if you talk to Edge, there's no other college in, in the U.S. Like, all he knows is the you. You know what I mean? Eat, sleep, and breathe the you. And I think knowing that that's his platform or everything that he inspires from that platform or, or everything that he achieved that was created from that platform he's always paying it forward. So EJ, like, you can't speak high enough. You know, like, he's never out of place. And he's always informed and educated on wherever he is. So you can't do nothing but respect it. You mentioned a lot of uh, different people, Solinger, Edger, and James, people being real, right? Honest, genuine, that's important to you. You said the same thing about Sean Taylor, that he was the same way. Is that something you respected about him? Is that kind of what connect, a part of what connected you guys? Yeah, you know, like for the people that I connected with at the University of Miami, man, like to come through those trenches, that's first off, to come through those trenches at the University of Miami, you know, you look around at all of these schools, but kids that come through Miami don't really have an a outlet. It's like make it or streets. You know what I mean? To be able to respect folks, you know what I mean? Coming in on the track scholarship and elevating to an atmosphere that at, at that point was unheard of. You know, the Reggie Waynes, the Ed Reeds, Philip Buchanan's like, I had so many influential teammates to Andre Johnson, who almost left school with me and Phil and his mom, like, Dre, just give, just give me one more year, son. Like, just wait. You know what I mean? Be patient. Your time coming. And to see him step out of that car and become the second pick in the draft months later, you know what I mean? Like, when you see that inspiration, when you see the Frankie G who uh, coming from the environment and everything that he overcame to all of a sudden being top three running backs of all time that's going to pick up the phone right now and still pay homage, that's going to spread the word, that's going to be honest. Like, you don't get that. You know, other schools don't share that bond. If, if you look, you have cliques at other schools that get, oh, yeah, this is my homeboy, so let me big up him. Do you, like, got a bond that, insiders know you know if you were there you know and if you weren't weren't there you don't know you don't know what in the hell is going on like you'll never hear me speak bad about anyone everybody feel like it's animosity between me and willis i love willis i don't talk every day to willis we don't hang out but i still have an appreciation because willis was a young a young tiger that pushed me to be better. You see what I'm saying? Like, I know how he felt. I know where he was coming from because I was in that position. So everybody, you you get an appreciation for, a respect for. So when it comes to Sean T and Trail Road, like, bro, I know what they were up against. You know what I mean? Like, you came and stepped on the University of Miami campus and 
for Entrail, you got Mike Rumpton in front of you. You got Philip Buchanan in front of you. For in in, in trail play safety too. When you look at those guys, the success they're having on and off the field. When you look at Entrail Rolling and being such a family oriented man and being an honest individual. When you look at Sean T, knowing how Baby Jackie changed his life before it was taken away, like being around Sean to see the growth and the maturity in, in Sean and the effect that a child had, you know, like uh, knowing these people, parents, knowing the roots of these guys where people just get an opportunity to see them on TV or see their athletic ability. For me, having an opportunity to see what created you to be the man that you are, you know, like where does this come from? The Black woman that's so often overlooked or downplayed the importance of her in all of these lives. And that's the one thing you see from Najee to Willis to EJ to Santana to Andre, you know, the importance of the mother, you know what I mean? The role and trail, you know what I mean? When you see these dudes and the importance of Big Vince losing his mom, there's so many stories that come out of that locker room, but the role and the upbringing, so similar from all different backgrounds. Can you believe Frank Orr is still going? I can, man. And you know what's crazy? I believe Frank, another, just me called, he, he FaceTimed me uh, yesterday, just for the last years. I mean, like, think, think, I guess it's going to be my last year. See? And then you look at ESPN and it's like, Frank Gore signs with Buffalo. Frank Gore signs with the Dolphins. Frank Gore signs with the Jets. Frank Gore signs with Indy. You know, like, I honestly think Frank going to play another year. Like, I think he's going to play this year. And then he's shifting over because his son is at Southern Miss. He got a son going to Wisconsin uh, this year. And then another one in the pipeline. So he's switching over to that dad life. But I don't think he's ready to fully give it up to his younger generation. So I think he gets one more year in and then, you know, rides into the sunset. But for him to have a career that he's had facing that adversity that it took for him to get to the University of Miami, uh, losing his mother, like everything that he's been through, the injuries, bouncing back, like Frank, like Teflon done, you know what I mean? And I always tell people, I knew Frank was good day one when he came out to practice. He didn't have on any gloves. He didn't have on any socks. He didn't have on no underwear. And he was at practice. And I looked, I said, Frank, man, what in the hell are you doing? And when I looked down and saw he had his his feet off in cleats with no socks on, I said, oh, man, this is a different breed. This is a different cat. So it doesn't surprise me or shock me of the success that Frank has had. All right, is it true that you watched Sean Taylor's highlight tape as a high school recruit and you went to Coach Sollinger and said, Coach, you added him in the room too? Me and Philip Buchanan, that was our thing. Like, it was Sunshine Network or something. You always used to get the incoming recruits. So we used to always go in the film room to watch our recruits. Me and Phil, like, this was our thing. And for everybody that came through, when Willison came through, like, we had already watched Willis. We had already went to Willis' game. You know, I had already saw him. Okay, cool. He could, but, you know, nothing that, that was intimidating or threatening to me. Frankie G, when to watch he and, and Roscoe, 
like was excited about getting those guys and what they were at, but wasn't worried. We watched Entrell, I think Talib Humphrey, like it was more guys that were included in what we watched. And when that final Kane's highlight tape came out, because Sean was underrated. It wasn't like people were talking about Sean. They respect that the West and Central and Carroll City and Southridge was getting. It was like, oh, this kid, you know, like, that's not serious football. So we're watching this highlight tape and Sean jumping over dudes, returning kicks, spin move, X, Y, Z, whatever it was that he's doing. And I'm in amazement. Like, this kid is huge. This kid is fast. Both ways, he busting heads. He running kickoffs back. He running punts back. I'm like, who is this dude? And I remember, like, I just burst into Coach Saw office like, damn, bro, like, you ain't even keeping it real with me. You know what I mean? And Sean and Frank came in the same year. He was like, man, what are you talking about? I'm like, who is Sean Taylor? And he was like, that kid wants to play safety. He He's not playing running back. And I'm like, what? Why the hell would he do that? I'm just like, hey, the kid wants to play safety. I don't know. And I'm like, <sighs> like, that was a relief. Like, whoo, I'm glad he playing safety. But you had Ed Reed over there. I had been watching Reed for three years at this time. And I'm like, but damn, him and Reed, stop. I said, oh, man, we got something. And at the same time, you had Entrell. So we were going to be depped up because Kelly Jennings, Kelly Jennings was there. Kelly Jennings, Philip Buchanan. <laughs> like, we were loaded. We were stacked when Entrell and Frank and Sean, like, when their class came in, we was already stacked. I do want to ask you about a group of guys that, you know, we talked about Edrin. Can you also just talk about the guys that left in 2000? So guys like Santana, Reggie. So, I mean, those dudes, no rings, no trophies at the Rose Bowl, but they're just as important and just as much a part. In fact, there probably isn't what occurred after if it's not for those guys. So people always say, oh, man, is the 01 Canes the best team of all time? And I always argue. The 2000 Kings is the best team of all time. I told that to Santana. You go down the roster, no one ever talks about 2000 because pretty much everyone from 2001 is on 2000, but you add Tana, Reggie, Dan. I'm sure I'm missing a few. You're like, that team's loaded. You add Damian Lewis, Al Blades, Dan Morgan. Like, that 2000 team is... I remember the change that came, and I kind of touched on it with the loss to Washington, but then I got hurt after. But I remember after the loss to Washington, I remember the change happening on the plane because we flew out to Washington, and Blades and a lot of the guys, Quincy Hibbs, a lot of the guys were so, like, Seattle, I mean, Washington is going to bow down to us, like, they better be afraid of us. Like, the big bad wolf is here. And it was the humbling that we got. It was the check your egos at the door that we got from losing to Washington that put us in position to go on and win for the next, you know, up into Ohio State where we got cheated. So you go from Washington to Ohio State before you taste defeat again. But it was that Washington loss and playing ride back that humbled us and that changed our work ethic and made us realize 
these teams aren't bowing down. The game still has to be played. And if you let a team stick around, if you let a team hang around, then they're going to fight. If you go back and look, we start putting teams away. Like, now we're starting to handle teams and get it over with before we celebrate. Whereas when we went to Washington, like, because it was the first time we were ranked, we, I think we were ranked fifth when we got to Washington. And everybody was so hyped that the University of Miami had climbed back into the top five rankings for the first time in however many years. And I just remember, like, thinking, man, we got the wrong attitude. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, uh, Marquise Tuiasasopo was eyes crossing T's and everything else with our defense before we calmed down. And we fought to put ourselves back in that game. And if we if we have 15 more seconds, we win that game. But because we knew our attitude was wrong, it changed everything. I still remember after we beat the University of Florida in the Sugar Bowl, normally guys, you know, want to take some time off or do X, Y, Z. Within a week of being the University of Florida, I can recall guys being back in that gym, compete, guys working out, like guys coming closer. And all of a sudden, we became inseparable. I think that's what began the bond for guys to, in the locker room now, we could still fight each other. But in public, we looked like the best team that you could ever find but it all came from that loss at Seattle and then that win against FSU and then you go beat the Gators and then you come back from beating the Gators like man they cheated us like we can't let this happen again and you think of the sacrifices that was made from that point because you had 9-11 at the time that we would have played Washington which pushed Washington back to later in the year and we go to Boston College and like I said, Matt Walters made the play. Ed Reed, the return. You go to VTech, where Philip Buchanan bats down a two-point conversion after VTech had came back and made it a game at VTech, you know. And then you think of those games at the Syracuse with Freeney playing Washington, those games that we just closed out, like, oh yeah, they stood in our way last year. Let's get this over with, you know. So it was so much that developed to the point of getting to the Rose Bowl that carried over from the loss to Washington to them returning back to the Fiesta Bowl. Like, it was so many stories and, and work ethics within that that, again, I would go and say Swayze would be the key behind all of that because it started with the conditioning, the attitude, the mindset, the uh, I mean, the, visu the visualization of winning those games, you know what I mean? Like focusing on making the plays before they were made. I know you went through some tough times post NFL and I don't want to dig into that. I just want to know you in a good spot now. Man, I'm in a great spot, man. I took fall for some stuff that I probably shouldn't have taken a fall for. I was involved in that I like honestly had no involvement in, but you look at the name. And it's like, oh, Clint Porters, and you want to knock Clint Porters off of a throne or or put him in a situation that you can't you can't box me. A lot of stuff don't make sense. And when when it comes out to clear your name, nobody ever prints that. 
You know what I mean? No one ever prints uh, the retraction or the false accusations or whatever it is. So for me, this is one of those situations like, man, you overcome. Adversity going to come in life. You win some, you lose some. The hell with it. Keep living, keep thriving, and I'm going to keep being me. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm in a great space. I think everybody in life go through that darkness or that, man, why this happened to me? And you can't question God. You know, I could say, man, why the f- am I involved in this? You know, like, bro, I have nothing to do with this. But outsiders, they're going to believe what they want to believe. I think for me and the people that know me or the people that surround me or the people that know the facts to see I ain't doing nothing crazy. I'm, I'm sitting back living, enjoying life, you know, staying out the way. That's what I do. We gonna see you in Miami this year? And you're gonna see me in Miami every year. All right, my friend. Thank you for the time. Hey, already, man. Have a good one.